times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked. Now it's time to feel good naked. No matter what your body size or life circumstances, this is Feel Good Naked Radio. And your host is Laura Redmond. On this program, Laura will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here is your host, Laura Redmond. Welcome. You are listening to Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your host, Laura Redmond. And what this show gives you are tools, take away tools to live a better life, to feel happier in the skin that you're in, and to really know how to be spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically embodied, bringing all of these things together. Today, oh my gosh, today we're talking about addiction and recovery. And I am giddy to have with me on the show today, Peg O'Connor. I was just thrilled that she agreed to come on the show. Peg O'Connor is professor of philosophy and gender, women and sexuality studies at Gustavus Adolphus College in Minnesota. She is the author of Life on the Rocks, Finding Meaning in Addiction and Recovery, She writes a blog about philosophy and addiction called Philosophy Stirred Not Shaken for psychologytoday.com, and she is also a regular contributor to the Pro Talk series at rehab.com. Peg is a recovering alcoholic who believes that philosophy helped her to get and stay sober. Welcome, Peg O'Connor, to the show. Well, thanks for having me on, and I'm I'm giddy to be on, too. If you can be giddy, I can be giddy. Well, I told you when we had our pre-interview that I, I'm a student of life. I'm always studying. I'm always researching. It is my great pleasure, and it is the gift that I bring to the work that I do. And I was in Powell's Books here in Portland looking for many different things, and I found your book, and I started to look at it. And an hour later, I was sitting on the floor, still in the bookstore, couldn't put it down, ran home and kept reading it. It's such an incredible book about addiction and recovery. And I've never really felt that anyone made the connections that you make in this book. So why don't we start by you telling our listeners how you made that aha connection between addiction and philosophy? Oh, sure, I'll do that, except to start first with, I mean, what what an image about sitting in a bookstore <laughs> with a book, which goes to show the importance of independent bookstores everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about yeah. how liberating that is. Anyone can go into a bookstore and look. So I yeah. just wanted to put that out there. Um, yeah. So how did I get involved with this? Well, you know, it, it, it's a funny question that has many answers. And the first answer is kind of, easy in the sense that as an undergraduate in college, I was already a raging alcoholic, and that's when I started to study philosophy. And the two went hand in hand in a kind of way, in the sense that I knew that I had a problem, and I was trying to figure out what to do about it. And I started reading these philosophers who 
I fell in love with in part because they seemed to understand exactly why and how I was tortured in the ways that I was tortured. And you know, one of the first philosophers I read was Aristotle. So, you know, writing roughly around 300 BCE ballpark. And he was talking about how each of us is responsible for the person he or she becomes, that we're responsible for our character. And for me to, as a, you know, 18, 19 year old to think about, I'm really responsible for the person I become and I'm not sure I like the person I'm becoming was really pretty enlightening, but I couldn't do anything about it at the time. I I wasn't ready to stop. And what I found was I was drawn to texts that seemed to torment me in a kind of way. The other philosopher I read a lot of was the great Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who talked about what it's life to what it's like to lead a life of anxiety and despair and dread and and I thought, oh my gosh, that's me. That's how I am as as someone who is you know 20 years old and drinking to the point of blacking out and passing out pretty regularly. And Kierkegaard scared the living daylights out of me so much that mm-hmm. I stopped reading him for about 20 years. And then I started teaching him again. I thought, I think I'm finally ready for it. So philosophy just spoke to me on certain levels because, you know, it's it's not a subject that students go into college knowing that they want to study in general, that most of us happen upon it by accident, maybe when fulfilling a general education credit. And for me, it was like falling onto the island of misfit toys, tortured Mm. people who seemed to get me, and I knew I wanted to understand more. And bottom line, I knew that it was my life, and I had to do something about it, that nobody was going to fix it for me. So that's that's sort of one way that it was always there. But the the other part of the answer is kind of weird. Um, For many years, for about the first 15 years of my career, I kept those two spheres of my life really separate. There is my professional philosophy piece, which I love philosophy, by the way, and uh, doing professional work, giving talks and papers on kind of more straight, narrow, but still feminist work in philosophy. And my life as a recovering alcoholic was completely off to the side. And they didn't come together, really, until I was with friends. And one friend asked this question, how do I know I'm the same person now when I'm not drinking, as I was when I was drinking, because I feel like two completely different people. And that question about what makes us the same person 20 years ago as we are now is who we might be 20 years from now is a really important philosophical question. So I had one of those light bulb moments of why why haven't I put these two parts of my life together in a kind of way? Because I think my training as a philosopher and my teaching to undergraduates and my life as a recovering addict all go together incredibly well. And that's in part what drove the blog on Psychology Today and the work on Rehabs.com, and that's how the book came into being. Mm. It reminds me of what David White says, which is that in every moment there exists the past, the present, and the future. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that's... Mm-hmm. It's kind of an interesting idea to me that I've been thinking a lot about. And I'd like to know how you answered her, by the way, at that dinner. What did, what did you say when she asked that? Well, I pointed out that, ironically, that was a question that I was talking about in one of my classes at the very moment. And we were huh. talking about the philosopher John Locke, who was writing in the late 1600s. And that was his question, what, what maintains the continuity of, of identity over time? And his answer 
memories. Memory is what mm-hmm. weaves throughout us and kind of holds us all together. So I said, you know, this one philosopher answers as if memory is like the psychic shrink wrap around you that, keep, that keeps you you. And that led to this really interesting set of discussions about, well, what if you don't have large parts of your memory, whether it's because of trauma or whether it's because you were such a heavy blackout drinker or user, what does that do to your identity? And that just had us all off to the races. And, and that, to me, just shores up my sense that gets reconfirmed repeatedly that people who struggle with addiction are some of the most philosophical people I have ever come upon. And frankly, that includes my colleagues in academic philosophy, some of the most philosophical people I've ever met. And though they may not have the academic training or the same background, they're asking the same kind of questions and having the same kinds of worries and concerns and perhaps even optimism. Mm. I think one of the most amazing parts of your book was when you identify an existential concussion I, I'm thinking about that right now as you're talking, and, I, and I'm going to go to your book, and I'm going to read this because I found it so incredible. It, you wrote, an existential concussion is caused by a sharp blow or a violent shaking of a person's life conditions, such as a sudden death, traumatic injury, or end of a long-term relationship. An existential concussion is both a cause and a consequence of acute suffering that is characterized by a lack of meaning. Wow. (laughs) That that really helped me to understand where one finds themselves many times when there is so much despair that the only way is to go up because there's no way to go down any further. So when you're talking about memory and you're talking about trauma and things that affect people's memory, would you please tell us in your own words a little more about what an existential concussion is with respect to memory? Mm. That's a great question. The, one of the fun things is today I was just talking about existential concussions. What happens when you are a person of faith who loses her faith? But if someone you you are someone who has been brought up in a, in a religious tradition, and you lose your faith, you lose the framework, you lose the conditions that have oriented you in the world and helped you to make sense of things. And when all of that is shaken, when it either erodes or explodes or is you know destructs in some kind of way, that you're really left without the conditions for making sense. You in some ways have no place to. Rene Descartes, a French philosopher, has this wonderful image of it's, if, it's as if you are in water and the water is too deep where you can't even set your foot down to rest for a moment or even to push off. And so what happens when you find yourself no longer making sense of the world around you and maybe perhaps not being able to make sense of yourself that you have this existential concussion? And so, you know, with respect to memory and trauma. I mean, everything I've read about memories as they relate to trauma is that those memories get laid down in your brain differently when they are traumatic. And that because they're so traumatic, that one of the ways that we typically, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of synthesize 
our memories and include them into our narratives that we tell ourselves is that we talk about them. We locate particular memories against a broader background. We locate them in a kind of way. But traumatic memories are so awful that it's as if we just quickly put them away and we don't at all let them infuse how we understand ourselves, how we talk about ourselves, how we talk about our experiences. So, you know, I'm, I'm always just so amazed when people who have, say, repressed really traumatic memories, the way in which when something triggers them, they experience that memory as if it is happening, happening in exactly the same way. So, for example, what happens to a woman, I mean, if we're talking about sort of what's going on in the world right now, that, you know, what happens to a woman who has repressed the memory of a sexual assault and suddenly that memory comes, sometimes it seems as if it flies out of nowhere and it flies out as this perfectly formed, high-definition video. What happens if that so hits you that it knocks out part of your framework, how do you make sense? I've never un- my, understood my experience to have been that, but now, oh my gosh, I have to reframe it. How do you make sense? And Nietzsche said that one of the greatest forms of suffering is not being able to make sense of your suffering. If it seems completely mm-hmm. senseless or meaningless, and that's the concussion piece. And then the question is, mm-hmm. well, how do you move on from that? How do you recover from that? Mm, gosh, oh, we're going to come right back, Peg, and we're going to pick up right there. We'll be right back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to feelgoodnakedradio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Feel Good Naked Radio. 
You are listening to Feel Good Naked Radio. I'm your host, Laura Redman, and today I am honored to be talking with Peg O'Connor, who is the author of Life on the Rocks, an amazing book about finding meaning in addiction and recovery. And when we went to break, we were dissecting her thoughts about an existential concussion and how that relates to memory. Um, And then at break, we were talking more about how philosophy saves lives, but you must understand it in order for it to be able to save your life. So please, Peg, go back to what you were saying about an existential concussion, memory, and how philosophy can connect all of this for each of us. So a lot of philosophers have always argued that suffering is just part of the human condition. We suffer. And what makes humans unique is that we can make sense of our suffering because of our cognitive capacities, all this other stuff, although I am completely on board, actually, with other animals being able to make sense of suffering, and there's no reason to think that that couldn't happen. And philosophy has always grappled with this question about suffering. And so in thinking about, you know, what do you do when you suffer one of these existential concussions, when you feel as if the legs have been knocked right out from underneath you. How do you begin to be able to move again? Because I think one of the things that happens is when you do suffer one of these existential concussions, that you become unable to move left or right. You don't know whether to look left or right, high or low, or you know, forward or backwards. And one of the things that I talk a lot about in that book, I think, because it's so important, is trust. I think one of the incredible casualties of addiction and addiction as both cause and consequence of an existential concussion, that trust is a casualty of addiction. Um, I I think that addiction is one of the most destructive dynamics for trust, both trust that others can have of us when we are active in our addiction and trust that I myself have for me, self-trust. And in the world of philosophy, self-trust is, you know, that too is on the island of misfit toys. It isn't quite regarded as something real or something real important. And I'm saying, actually, philosophy has gotten it really wrong. Self-trust is incredibly important. So that question of how do you begin to trust yourself? How do you begin to trust that maybe the decision I make to look left as opposed to right is a good one? And this is going to sound so trite. I'm not really sure that I want to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. I mean, it is in some ways about being willing to take a little bit of a risk and to take a little something on faith, and we'll talk, we can talk more about what, what faith is a, a little later, and just recognize, though, that when you are so down for the count, sometimes even being able to move a little bit is the victory, and that that victory has to count for something might not count for everything, but it's something. And trust in yourself is something that can only be built up slowly over time. And that trust isn't just about doing the right things, but the trust is about being able to correct or repair when you do the wrong thing. And by wrong, I don't necessarily mean morally wrong. I mean, it was like, oh, turns out that wasn't the best way to go, or that wasn't the best decision. And that the world doesn't end. And it's also, oddly enough, related to having a kind of humility. And so, you know, 
oftentimes there's this funny combination. I don't know. And tell me whether you agree with this or not. But that people who are perfectionists, who assume I've got to do everything right and not doing everything right is a surefire sign of my, oh, what? If I'm less than perfect, then I'm god-awful, that kind of all-or-nothing thinking. That if you are a perfectionist, you oftentimes actually don't trust yourself that you are doing the best that you can because it could always be better. And... To overcome that perfectionism, to to be able to trust yourself, you have to be willing to have that faith that you can make mistakes and that you're still going to be okay. And that's, I think, one of the hardest parts for people to accept. I would totally agree. I call that the hypercritic within mm-hmm. each of us, that if right. she or he becomes loud enough, then there is, an uh, and you refer to this in your book, there is a, a sense of self-deception and self-delusion, because mm-hmm. that, that, that's an impossible place to live from. So would you, would you connect that to self-deception and self-delusion? I think that is. I, I argue that perfectionism is a form of self-deception, because as you say, you actually end up holding yourself to an unmeetable standard with the expectation that you should, you should be able to do that. You wouldn't hold other people to that standard because, well, no one else could actually do that, but that you should. I mean, that's a way to separate off from others. And the fact of the matter, though, is if you are a perfectionist, you're probably going to get stuck in some kind of way. So, for example, I know that there are plenty of philosophers in my universe who, on many accountings, are probably better philosophers than I am, or they're better writers, but they're perfectionists, and they're afraid to let anything go because it might not be perfect. And I think one of the greatest gifts is at times to be able to say, this is good enough, and I'm going to send off this piece or this this manuscript, this submission, whatever. I'm going to send it off. It's good enough right now, and I know it can be better and that I'll get good comments, but that I'm not perfect. Because the perfectionist actually probably also engages in, in, in a form of procrastination. So I can't remember if I talked about it in the book, but the philosopher Kierkegaard has a wonderful way to describe procrastination, which he does think is a form of self-deception because it's, there's, a, there's a large gap between what I say I want and what I am actually willing to do. So he mm. describes procrastination as sewing without tying a knot at the end of the thread. So you make all the motions of sewing and you pull that needle and thread through, but the practical consequences are missing. You haven't sewn anything. You've made all the motions and you've been busy, but you don't get the effect that you wanted, i.e. that the tear in the seat of your pants has been sewn. And that's what procrastination is like. You make all the motion, but without the right outcomes. And how does that connect to addiction, in your opinion? One of the things that that I've seen is that a lot of us will say, I'm going to quit drinking when? Well, I just got to get through this really tough time, or I'll quit drinking when, you know, all these other things in my life are in alignment, or I'll be willing to go to rehab. This is one that I've seen. I'll be willing to go to rehab when I make sure that I have done an exhaustive search of 
treatment facilities and what options are best. It is incredibly important to do that kind of research. There's no doubt about it. But if you keep doing more and more and more research saying, I know I need to go to treatment and I want to get as best information as I can, but then you never go to treatment because you think, oh, there's there's more research I could do, that's a form of procrastination that shows that gap between what I know I need to do and what I'm actually willing to do. So there's this joke in academia when you're getting ready to read your dissertation. Oh, I'll start writing when I just read that one more book and that one more book just (laughs) keeps going and going and going. And I think people come up with reasons. Yeah, I know I need to go, but it's the kind of, yeah, but. Yeah, I know I need to do this, but. And then you'll come up with, in some ways, perhaps reasonable justifications for not doing something, but at some point, all those reasonable justifications are actually masking what might be procrastination and keeping you from doing what it is that you need to do and that you know it. Procrastinators know when they're procrastinating. So is that an example? Would that be an example where the unconscious is more intelligent than the conscious mind? Yeah, you know, I don't know. See, as a philosopher, I don't traffic too much in that language of conscious and unconscious minds, but it it seems that it seems as if a person is split with themselves in some kind of way, and whether or not they're aware of that split, I don't know, but certainly the, for me the expression being of two minds about something um has has a lot of traction. And and also I think that that whole notion of self-sabotage. I think philosophically that's fascinating. Hmm. Now, when you say the addict, going back to what you just connected for that hyper-perfect critic mm-hmm. within self and then the addiction, I want to go to powerless because we hear this a lot with the addictive language. You're powerless right. over something. You're powerless over a substance or alcohol or whatever the addiction may be. Even now we hear the internet. And my question is, where does powerlessness live within that perfectionist? Well, uh, yeah, I think a perfectionist would think... I mean, I think there's global perfectionists who think, oh, I should do absolutely everything perfectly. And then there are the more kind of covert, more hidden perfectionists who in certain areas of their life, they can let things go. But in other areas, they have to be absolutely perfect. I mean, I, th- I think there's there is something of of a viable um, distinction there. But the notion of powerlessness and perfection, I think that's what holds a lot of people up. Because mm-hmm. how global is that claim about powerlessness? So that word, that expression powerlessness comes from the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think it's, it's important to, to remember that um, powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. It's powerless over a substance. It isn't powerlessness over absolutely everything, but it's about powerless over this substance. I'm powerless about all kinds of things. I would love to be able to fly. I can't, I'm powerless against gravity. There are lots of things that I would like to be able to do, but I'm powerless in some sense in ways that don't bother me. But, you know, one of the things that's, that has happened is that 
you know, who wants to admit that they're powerless over something? Because in a world that is not set up fairly, in a world that confers systematically benefits on some and burdens on others, it's very hard for someone to stand up and say, I'm powerless over this. But for me, when I think about it, I think, well, you know, I'm not powerless over alcohol in the sense right now that if someone were to wave a perfectly chilled Molson golden ale that they have just opened under my nose, I'm not going to knock them over the head and grab it. I'm not going to do that. But I kind of have a sense based on past practice that I could probably drink normally for perhaps even a good long time, but that at some point I might start to change my relationship to alcohol. And I think for me, the the powerlessness, even when I was really actively drinking, I saw the powerlessness all the time when I would make promises to myself. So I was someone who would decide I am not going to drink during my athletic seasons, and I wouldn't. And then I would take that as evidence for the fact that, well, I really don't have a problem. See, I, I quit over here for you know a month and a half. Look at me. Wahoo. But then when the end of the season party rolled around, I would start drinking and I would not stop. I, in some sense, was powerless once I started drinking. I wasn't powerless when it came to the choice of whether or not I'd pick up that first drink. But, you know, you get seven, eight, 17, 18 drinks in me. I'm powerless in that sense. Mm, So for me, there is something that's actually liberating in saying, you know what, that's one thing I'm not sure I want to try to get into a tug of war with or assume Mm -hmm. that something in my will could make me behave in a certain way. I'm choosing not to tangle with those kinds of dimensions. So I'm just going to put it in the category of, you know what, I'm powerless over that. It's beyond my limits. Don't want to deal with it. But I don't think there's anything that needs to be disempowering in acknowledging what you're powerless over. We'll be right back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to feelgoodnakedradio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. 
You're listening to Feel Good Naked Radio. I'm your host, Laura Redmond, and today we are talking with Peg O'Connor about addiction. Peg is the author of Life on the Rocks, and when we went to break, we were dissecting the whole concept of being powerless over something, which is how we define an addiction. And what I thought was really helpful, Peg, was that you were basically saying that if you are powerless and it's an innocuous situation that's very different than being powerless over something such as alcohol. Yeah, and and maybe this will help make it clear. I think of of my addiction now as a limiting condition. It limits certain things about how I will interact in the world and what I'm willing to do and unwilling to do. And all of us face limiting conditions of a variety of sorts. So, for example, as we age, we face different limiting conditions. Say, if we develop arthritis, if we develop food allergies, I mean, all these sorts of things that affect how we are in the world. So, I think if the language of powerlessness makes people uncomfortable, and I think there's there are reasons why, if you are a person who has been disempowered in all these ways, to say, and here's more powerlessness I have, that might be a little alienating. But to say, you know, look, when you are a certain age, we lose muscle tone, we lose flexibility. There are just some things that we can't do anymore. And I guess that's how I feel about say, alcohol for me. I just can't do it anymore. I'm choosing not to do it anymore. And I primarily am going to organize my life in a way where I don't have to keep making the decision, am I going to drink now? Am I not going to drink now every day? I organize my life in such a way where most of my friends are people in recovery. I'm not in a lot of situations where a lot of alcohol and other drugs are around. So it limits me in some ways. But at the same time, It has made me so much more free. It's also liberating. Limits, it turns out, can be very liberating when you accept them and you say, yeah, here they are. So I'm not going to worry about those things anymore. So here's a really innocuous example. So (laughs) I started Taekwondo when I was 47. And, you know, it turns out after a life of playing all kinds of sports, I have a lot of injuries, which means I just can't do certain things anymore. You know, my high kick could maybe hurt a garden gnome. I'm not (laughs) going to really judge myself harshly because my high kicks aren't flying up as high as a 20-year-old's are. I can't do that anymore. And it's kind of liberating not to put the pressure on myself to meet unmeetable demands. And that loops back to the perfectionist piece anymore. You know what? When you have limitations, you can't be perfect, and that's actually what it means to be human. Oh, yay. Yeah. So, And I want to use that as a segue to how brilliantly you unpack the idea of guilt and shame in your book, and I think all of this connects in a way. Um, And I want to read this. You write that guilt usually attaches to a particular act, a thought, or a belief, Its scope is limited to that particular act or that class of acts. Shame, on the other hand, doesn't attach to particular acts, thoughts, or feelings, but rather to the person as a whole. So let's go to shame and guilt as a way to further dissect this whole concept of not only addiction, but recovery. I think guilt 
does have some good, positive, productive uses. Because I think a lot of us would agree, if someone does a particular act that is bad or wrong or hurts someone else or is callous, I mean, any of those sorts of things, if a person doesn't act like that and feels no guilt or no remorse about it, that there's something wrong with that situation, that the absence of guilt can be an important signal that, you know, something is, is, is off here. Very wrong, yeah. Yeah, and, and for me, guilt has a proper scope. I can feel guilty, you know, if I have said something, you know, if, if I'm, with, I'm with friends and I start talking about someone else, if I'm, if I'm, come on, we all know when we start to exchange information, then it becomes gossipy and then it becomes, you know, worse, gets more catty, that I feel guilty when I do that because I know that I am in some sense, harming another person, even if that person doesn't know that I'm talking about them. And I'm harming myself in some kind of way because I don't want to be a vicious gossip. I'm hurting my character when I do that. That that guilt can prompt me to say, you know what? I'm just not going to act like that when I'm around these people. Or, you know, these people bring something out in me I don't like. I'm not going to hang out with them. That's okay. That's good. Guilt can be useful that way. But guilt is a chameleon, and guilt can morph really, really quickly. What happens when I start to feel guilty for things that are so far beyond my control, but I still somehow think that they should have been in my control? Maybe there's a link there to perfectionism as well, right? Because, well, Mm -hmm. someone like me should have been able to anticipate what bad consequences there could have been. Well, Nobody could have anticipated consequences like that. But if I start to feel a guilt that starts to expand, it's kind of like if there are any tea drinkers out there, you know, a tea stain, you know, what starts as a little tea stain starts to become a much bigger stain. That guilt can morph into shame. Because shame will be not just about, like I said, that particular class of things. Oh, I'm being kind of gossipy. I was gossipy last night and I'm being gossipy now. I don't want to be a gossipy person. That shame becomes about the whole person such that my self-understanding of myself is always through a kind of thick, sticky, gooey lens or filter of shame. And that means in some ways... I'm going to be self-deceived. I'm not going to be able to see myself clearly nor see the world around me clearly if I am so covered in shame. Mm. It fundamentally affects my ability to see things clearly because if I'm ashamed of who I am, uh, there's this thing called confirmation bias, I'm going to take anything that happens to me and I'm always going to take that as evidence for, as proof for, the fact that I am a shameful person, that I am a rotten person, or I'm a person you know who has has no value or virtue or anything like that, and shame can become completely debilitating because the the terrible thing about shame is a lot of people don't actually recognize when they are operating from the basis of shame because it's so familiar it's so customary for them. They've become so habituated to doing that, that I think that that shame is one of the most destructive forces there is in the world. And what happens is that 
people take on shame and they shame themselves. And we all know that other people can shame us. And sometimes we get shamed as particular individuals or we get shamed because we're members of certain groups, whether it's because of our sex, our our race, our whether we're able-bodied or our sexual orientation, that the politics of shame are both deeply, deeply, deeply private, but also very, very public. So, Peg, what would you say would be a takeaway tool for anyone listening to be able to have an awareness around that shameful thought process? If if you just said it sometimes just goes ignored within the individual, how can we mm-hmm. amp up that awareness for that individual? Well, and I think this becomes one of the, the, the tricky things. So, you know, what I didn't talk about, how do you learn to trust yourself? And I think overcoming shame and learning to trust yourself, they are, they're traveling on the same path there. They're, they're deeply connected. Is that that is sometimes something that I myself can't do for myself and that I need the help of others. And I think this is one of the reasons why so many people in recovery don't necessarily see the recovery as all of their own doing, but has very much been an achievement that has been best done in the company of others, whether it's people in an AA group, people in a support group, good friends, or sometimes even total strangers, how people can come together in a kind of way. And oftentimes, uh, the right people in our lives act as moral mirrors to us, and they can reflect us back to ourselves in a way that we can't see when we look in a in a mirror by ourselves. And I think you see that with people in recovery that, you know, if they've always said, I'm such a, you know, rotten person, I've done all these terrible things, to have someone else say to them, you know, maybe you did all these things, but here's how I see you right now. And then there's that trust piece. How do you learn to trust that someone is actually telling you the truth, that they are reliable reporters on who you are when you assume that you know yourself best? So being in the company of the right others, I think, is absolutely crucial. At the same time, I think we know that the, the dynamics of shame tend to lead to isolation. And shame, yeah. isolation, and addiction are kind of an unholy trifecta. So would you say that the takeaway would be for someone to get themselves into a group where they can observe themselves through the reaction of other? Or what I'm trying to figure out is if someone is completely not aware of their shame cycle, how do they become aware of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and for those people who have access to something like that, I think it's absolutely vital to be able to do that. But then I also come back to the fact that, you know, one of the ways that, well, here, I'll I'll just out myself here. So I'm a lesbian. I came out in college, um, so roll back to the early 80s. And there weren't a lot of role models out there. But what I did was I went to the library and I looked for books and I tried to read about people like me. You know, and I think about the importance of of literature. I mean, how much better the world is now, say, for GLBT kids. It's better in so many ways, but it's still horrific in so many ways. But one of the things is we have more public models out there. There are more memoirs out there. So even if you can't be in the direct company of particular others face-to-face, I mean, I think if you've got access to the Internet, if you have access to libraries, any kind of 
way to try to get you out of the feed, your own internalized feedback loop to maybe see, oh, wait, that person did the same thing that I did, but I can understand why she did it. If she could do it, maybe I can do it. Maybe I wasn't all that bad. I mean, I think that overcoming shame has to somehow have social components in it. Yep. We'll be right back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to feelgoodnakedradio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. You are listening to Feel Good Naked Radio, and I'm your host, Laura Redmond. Today, we are having a fascinating conversation with Peg O'Connor, who is the author of Life on the Rocks. At commercial, we were talking about the enormous, um, trying to understand the hugeness of shame and guilt and the importance of putting yourself out there in the world, even when it's uncomfortable or even through a book or a internet group, something that gives you an understanding of that shadowy self that is often very close to shame. Um, I want to open this last segment with the quote that Peg uses to open her book. I think it's a beautiful way to tie all of this together and to end with faith, as we said we were going to get to, and the whole notion of recovery. This is a quote by Kierkegaard, and the quote is, the greatest hazard of all, losing the self, can occur very quietly in the world, as if it were nothing at all. No other loss can occur so quietly. Any loss, an arm, a leg, $5, a wife, etc., is sure to be noticed. I love that quote, Peg, and I think that's exactly what we're saying with respect to shame and then getting to the other side of that, which mm-hmm. leads to recovery and faith. 
Yeah. So maybe you can see why I stopped reading Kierkegaard for about 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's only recently that I'm able to get back to him. Oh, it's oh. so good. Yeah, it that just really, that hits you because you can lose the most important thing and you won't even notice it. Whereas if you put down your cell phone, you're going to go into a full-blown panic or, you know, I was slapping myself silly in all my pockets looking for my keys. But that losing the self, when it happens so gradually, because I think you you adjust to certain sorts of ways of being in the world that you see as normal. This is just how things are. And you don't realize that perhaps you have shut down or cut off parts of yourself, maybe your interests or relationships with others, and you just kind of hunker down in such a way that you don't know who you are anymore. You stop paying attention to to who you are. And one of the things that that Kierkegaard writes, and this sometimes strikes people as really counterintuitive, is that happiness is despair's greatest hiding place. Mm. Happiness is despair's greatest hiding place. So he wrote it much more eloquently, but that's what it boils down to. And in many ways, I think what he means there is if you are someone who's going about your daily life somewhat on autopilot, and let's say, you know, let's sort of really go for what many would say is a good life. You've got a really good job and you've got a good, well, Kierkegaard says wife. You've got a good wife and you've got good kids and everything, you know, if you were to get a checklist of things that are good to have in your life that you have, you've got it all. That is where despair can hide the best. And you'd say, wait, 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 wait a minute. I've, I've got everything here. I'm happy. And what Kierkegaard says is you feel despair when you don't pay attention to your true nature. And what Kierkegaard is talking about is the fact that all human beings for Kierkegaard have a spiritual side. And if you don't pay attention to your spiritual side, you're running on this kind of autopilot where you're checking off things on the list and maybe you have some nice things like a nice car and a nice house, but you're not awake. You're not attuned to yourself in a kind of way. And so I think a lot of people... You know, wasn't there that talking head song? You know, this isn't my beautiful wife watching mm. the days go by. Yeah. What happens if you just watch those days go by and you're busy, you're working well, and you're doing all these sorts of great things, but it turns out that you perhaps might be really susceptible to a certain kind of despair or existential concussion. What if you wake up one day and you say, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I don't recognize my own life. And I think people do have epiphanies like that, but we don't often talk about them. I mean, it would it would feel terrible if I were to complain, I don't feel I'm happy or I've, I've lost myself in this kind of way because I've got everything. People think I was crazy to give up this job or say I'm not happy in this relationship or I really need to do something differently. And something like shame is one way where you can lose yourself again. So the ways that all of the buildup of shame just continues to grow. You get used to it. You get used to being hunkered down. I mean, think about the ways in which if you, say, injure, you you hurt one knee, how you start to walk to compensate for that pain, and soon you don't even notice that you're, you're walking in that kind of way. And shame can do it, and uh, shame can lead to addiction. Addiction can cause more shame, so then you just get more 
shame there, and you've lost yourself. But it turns out you were the only one who can help find yourself. So maybe we come back to that question of, you know, how do you overcome shame? How do you find yourself? And so then we reach the the topic of faith, and that's actually what we were talking about today in my uh, class on the good life. And William James had this wonderful question of, how do you live in continuity with divine energy or infinite power or infinite being? Higher and friendly power was another was another phrase that he used, and that is so deeply individual. But I think there are some good lessons that we can learn from some of the great philosophers, and one of whom is Nietzsche, and this is a strange use of Nietzsche, but Nietzsche asks every person to imagine that in their life, a kind of all-powerful demon comes to them and says, would you live this same life exactly including my asking you this question. Would you live it exactly for all eternity? And Nietzsche said, this is really kind of a litmus test. If you answer no, that means you haven't fully taken charge of your life and your ways of living. But if you answer yes and you wish for nothing more fervently, then you are living exactly the right sort of life. And I think people who have good recovery... Even if we have done some awful things in our addictions and some shameful things in our addiction, many of us would still say, I would do that same life over and over and over again. Hmm. Because that addiction, having that addiction has made me the person that I am today. And I wouldn't want to excise it. And so that's when those of us who talk about, I'm a grateful alcoholic, I'm grateful for my recovery but I'm grateful for the addiction too. And that that's an interesting point to start to live, to be grateful uh, for something that most people would say, I don't want that at all. Well, and that takes me to the final moments of your book that were as profound to me as the entire read, which is you write, there is a light at the end of suffering in making a new meaning of one's addiction, overcoming self-deception, making friends, and taking responsibility, we can be transformed and regenerated. We become people who are capable of flourishing and leading our best possible lives. For as much as suffering is part of the human condition, so too is joy. Peg O'Connor, this has been such a a pleasure. I have loved talking to you. I treasure your book. I encourage everyone out there to go read it. And I want you to know that I know an hour with me was a big shift for your schedule today, and I really appreciate it. So thank you. Oh, thank you for having me on. This has been a wonderful time, and um, I really appreciate your questions, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about addiction and recovery. Enjoy. Yeah. The joy, and I think you'll, you'll, you'll find value in the way that I conclude each of my shows, which is to remind all the listeners out there that you complete you. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Lar Redmond. Please join us again live next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin. <laughs>